Okay, welcome everyone to this edition of Surety Today. Uh, my name is Mike Stover. I'm a partner in the Surety Law Group here at Wright Constable and Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm joined today by George Backrack, a man who needs no introduction, so he won't get any. Uh, surety Today is designed, as you know, to keep the busy claims professional up to date and informed on surety issues. Wherever you are, if you have a phone, you can dial in. If you missed the presentation, you can listen to a recording on our website at wcslaw.com or as a podcast at podbean.com, Surety Today. The program is offered only to in-house claims professionals. So far, we have issued 198 pins, and over 400 people have called in since we started the program last May. Uh, we, of course, appreciate your support, and we ask that uh, you know, you pass along our contact information to any colleagues who you think might be interested in calling in, um, catching some of the presentations. Um, if you have any suggestions for topics or, you know, any improvements, things we could do better, uh, please let us know. And if you have any technical issues, please contact Ms. Jeannie Hyatt at jhyatt, uh, that's J-H-Y-A-T-T, at wcslaw.com. We will mute the line during the presentation to avoid background noise, and we will unmute the line at the end for question and answers. All right, so I just muted the line. Our topic today is surety case law update, what we have found interesting over the past nine months. We did this um, case law update as our initial uh, presentation for surety today back in May 2016. And what we've done is kind of the same thing. We've gone back through the uh, SFAA uh, case blurbs that come out periodically and since May. So from May till January, we went through all of those case blurbs and picked out uh, a few cases that we wanted to discuss today. So without further delay, I will turn it over to George to get us started. Uh, good afternoon. In choosing the cases to discuss, one of the issues we have struggled with is whether to address or discuss cases where the litigated problem arises at the surety underwriting level. Most surety claims arise at the obligee principal and the principal and payment bond claim levels, namely the obligee claims that the principal is in default, the principal claims that the obligee is in default, and the principal and the surety and the payment bond claimants dispute who is liable for what and the amount of the damages. Other surety claims arise when the surety seeks to assert its rights, its indemnity and subrogation rights, among others. But sometimes the surety claims representative is faced with, a, with resolving a problem resulting from a form of surety underwriting self-inflicted wound. Uh, there are a number of examples in recently reported cases, some of which we see many times and others which are more unique. For example, there are cases involving forged indemnity or signatures on indemnity agreements, or the cases involve misnaming the principal either in the indemnity agreement or the bonds. Uh, there have been several recent cases concerning the proper execution of the indemnity agreement by uh, LLC indemnitors. Who is the proper managing member to execute the indemnity agreement on behalf of the LLC? And what are the ramifications to the surety if it doesn't get the right person or entity to execute the indemnity agreement? Furthermore, there's a recent case where the surety underwriters failed to renew a license bond. Uh, 
which may potentially result in the surety's liability and damages to the principal, or at least that's what's been alleged. When these kinds of cases arise, the claims representative is usually stuck with pretty hard facts that can't be changed or modified. And the only question is whether the surety has any legal liability, loses its rights of indemnity, or subrogation, or faces other exposure. And the case that I intend to talk about today is when the surety bonds year two of a five-year contract and then faces exposure to liability for the three future years that the surety thought that it did not bond. The case is called Mashmire, and we'll send you the citation after the presentation. But in that case, the surety bonded year two of a five-year contract. Uh, another surety had bonded year one and didn't renew the bond. The total contract for the remaining four years was $600,000, so the year two pay, uh, bond penal sum was 150000 or one-fourth of the remaining four years. The year two bond incorporated by reference the applicable bond, the state bond statute um, and the original uh, contract provisions. But specifically, the year two bond stated that the term of the bond is for the period of one year from December 1, 2012 to November 30, 2013, regardless of the contract language to the contrary. Now, what happened was is that the obligee and the principal renewed the bond for year three and year four. Uh, the opinion does not say whether the year two bond was extended or renewed or whether the language has changed in some fashion to uh, go for the year three and year four. I will have to assume that the answer is no. The only thing mentioned in the case is that the principal said in the year three renewal acceptance that it would send the bond to the obligee at the appropriate time. Needless to say, a payment bond claimant filed a claim for work performed partially in year three and year four, and then the principal files for bankruptcy in year four. So the claim comes into the surety, and the surety's defense is, well, I executed a year two bond. Its limited term duration is to year two only, certain specific dates, and it did not cover the work performed by the claimant in year three or four. The court held that the surety was liable under the year two bond for the year three and year four claim. The reason the state's bond statute was changed on October 1, 2012, just before the surety's execution of the year two bond in December of 2012. And that amendment provided that any provision in a statutory bond which limits or expands the effective duration of the statutory bond is unenforceable. The court stated that the change in the bond statute occurred prior to the surety's execution of the year two bond and was presumably known by the surety. Therefore, the year two bond duration was extended to cover the full term of a single five-year contract when that contract was renewed for year three and year four. As a result, the one-year duration in the year two bond was unenforceable, and the surety was liable to the claimant for its year three and year four claims. Now the question is, is this an underwriter self-inflicted wound when the statute was changed in October 1, 2012, and the year two bond was in effect starting on December 1, 2012, two months later? 
my my response is maybe yes and maybe no. But it is certainly a warning to sureties that multiple year and renewable contracts have red flags all over them and have to be watched closely. This occurs both as to the duration of the contracts from time A to time B, but also for those contracts where the principal scope of work is partly bonded and partly non-bonded, such as the surety bonds and demolition work, but not the rest of the work on the project, which is a case that Mike Stover had and one for the surety. In final comment, you may want to talk to your under, underwriters and point out the potholes in providing such bonds under the above circumstances in order to avoid, avoid writing and charging a premium for one year for a $150,000 bond that may later be found to cover $600,000 in exposure over four years, not one year. Mike? All right. <clears throat> Thanks, George. Underwriters, what are you going to do with them? You know, you can't live with them, can't live without them. Thanks, George. The first case uh, I'd like to discuss explores the issue of waiver under the Miller Act. In Tri-State Electric versus Western Surety Company, and as George said, we'll get to the sites uh, after the presentation, the court addressed a sub-subcontractor's claim for delay damages against the Miller Act payment bond. The project involved an electrical system upgrade at the Boise, Idaho Veterans Administration's Medical Center, the general contractor was Cygnos, Inc., uh, and it was bonded by Western Surety. Cygnos entered into a subcontract with Apex Enterprises to replace certain electrical switchgear, and Apex, in turn, entered into a sub-subcontract with Tri-State Electric to perform part of that subcontract work. The project experienced significant delays, and a wide variety of disputes arose between the parties, but the dispute I'd like to focus on uh, for purposes of this discussion relates to a damage limitation argument that was asserted by Western. In response to the claims of Tri-State, Western pointed to a provision in the Apex Tri-State sub-subcontract, commonly referred to as a no damage for delay clause, which provided that the contractor should not be liable to the subcontractor any, for any damages or additional compensation as a consequence of delays caused by others unless the contractor has first recovered for such damages on behalf of the subcontractor. The subcontractor's sole and exclusive remedy for delay shall be an extension in a time for performance of the subcontractor's work. So that's a standard provision you see in subcontracts, and, um, and typically they're, they're upheld. There are some jurisdictions that don't enforce those and, and, and some that do. In response to Western's arguments, Tri-State um, asserted that the damage limitation provisions were impermissible waivers under the Miller Act, and such provisions were therefore void. Now, the waiver that they're referring to is, uh, in 1999, Congress amended the Miller Act to include a provision specifying the requirements for a valid waiver of Miller Act rights. The provision at 40 U.S.C. Section 3133C provides a waiver of the right to bring a civil action on a payment bond required under this subchapter is void unless the waiver is, one, in writing, two, signed by the person whose right is waived, and three, executed after the person whose right is waived has furnished labor or material for use in the performance of the contract. Now, the court denied Western Surety's motion for summary judgment based on the no damage for delay clause, finding that such a provision violated the Miller Act waiver clause and was void because the damage limitation provision was entered into before any work was performed. The court found that the no damage for delay clause effectively amounted to a waiver of the claimant's rights to bring an action on the payment bond. Now, a good argument can be made that the court got this one wrong, 
let's look at some of the basics here. The Miller Act provides for the recovery of sums that are justly due. That's what the statute says. In general, the surety's liability on a payment bond is defined by the liability of the underlying contract. Thus, it has been held that the surety on a Miller Act payment bond is liable only to the extent that the general contractor would be liable. For this reason, the surety may avail itself of the contract defenses available to the bonded principal. Now, the well-recognized purpose of the Miller Act is to ensure that subcontractors are promptly paid for their work on federal construction projects. Other courts that have addressed the no damage for delay clause have made the distinction between clauses that affect the timing of recovery and with clauses that affect the measure of recovery. And these courts have held that no damage for delay clauses only affect the measure of recovery and not the timing as such are not, and, and as such are not contradictory to the Miller Act and are valid enforceable provisions. The court in, uh, in a case, Morganti National Inc. versus Petrie Mechanical Company, 2004, Westlaw 1091743, District of Connecticut, 2004, observed that the no damages for delay clause is one that affects the measure of damages, i.e., whether there is any liability for monetary damages. It simply delineates the extent of the general contractor's liability or, in the context of the Miller Act, what sums are justly due to the subcontractor. Accordingly, the no damages for delay clause just as much defines the liability of the surety as it does the liability of the bonded principal, and so both parties are entitled to raise this clause in their defense. In contrast, if you have, a, a, for example, a pay-if-paid provision, that has been held by numerous courts uh, to affect the timing of the payment and therefore is not enforceable under the Miller Act as an impermissible waiver uh, there are also cases out there holding that contract provisions which purport to bind the claimant to the dispute resolution process of the bonded principal also can constitute an impermissible waiver. So the takeaway from this case is that the surety may not be able to rely on all of the underlying contractual defenses in the bonded contract if those defenses conflict with the requirements of the Miller Act such that they constitute an impermissible waiver. George? My next case is Kimball versus XL Specialty Insurance Company. This case discusses a preference action in the principal's bankruptcy case. Uh, the facts were less than 90 days before the principal filed his bankruptcy, the principal pays a subcontractor $100,000. After the principal files a bankruptcy case, the surety pays the subcontractor an additional $200,000 under the payment bond and obtains a full executed release, and that's the important fact here. Twelve months later, the principal's trustee files a preference complaint against the subcontractor for the $100,000 that were paid pre-petition. There is no defense to the preference payment action. It was not ordinary course. It was not new value. It was not a trust fund provision. There were no defenses. So the subcontractor sues the surety for the $100,000 it has legally turned over to the trustee as a preference. The question is who wins, the surety because of the full release or the subcontractor because it has not been paid in full for the work uh, despite the release. Um, these are tough cases. They usually come up under one or two situations. Uh, the first one is this one as a result of the subcontractor signing a full release of his claims against the surety and the payment bond. The second is 
when the applicable statute of limitations for a claim against a payment bond has expired at the time of the filing of the preference complaint. Uh, sometimes sureties make a policy decision to pay these claims regardless of the limitations or release defenses, and I've been on that side of the fence. Sometimes the payment may have to be made in order for the surety to successfully assert its subrogation rights to the bonded contract funds. Namely, if a sub hasn't been put, paid, the surety may not have subrogation rights. Sometimes the release does not include a release of possible preference actions, and the subcontractor maintains the right to seek additional claims if it subsequently faces a preferential payment exposure. Where sometimes the release refers to specific invoices to be paid by the surety, and the preference action is for prior invoices that are not listed or part of the release. Furthermore, even if there is no post-petition payment by the surety or release by the payment bond claimant, Section 70 of the Restatement of Suretyship provides that the surety's payment bond obligation revives when the claimant paid by the principal within 90 days before the bankruptcy case is then sued for receiving a preferential payment. Now, in the Kimball and XL case, the subcontractor lost big time because when it attempted to assert its claims against the surety while facing almost $600,000 in preferential payments, the court found that the executed release of all claims against the surety was clear, straightforward, plain, and unambiguous. The court stated that even though the trustee filed the preference action after the release was executed, the subcontractor signed the release over four months after the principal's bankruptcy case was filed. Therefore, the subcontract was on clear notice of the principal's bankruptcy filing and the possible filing of a preference action or complaint for the $100,000 payment. So the release was found to be valid and applicable with respect to the bond claims the subcontractor asserted after the release was executed arising from pre-petition preferential payments. What are the ramifications of this? Well, the court's ruling was legally correct very harsh, and may eventually result in no subcontractor or supplier ever signing a surety's release of claims without a reservation of rights, either to assert another claim in the event there's a preference action, or when the release is specifically related to particular invoices, that the release won't apply to the invoices that are subject to the preferential complaint. Remember, there's a reason why the claimant is seeking payment from the surety under the payment bond. Namely, it's because it's not getting paid by the principal. Frequently, that is a result of the principal having no money to pay the claim because it is insolvent and about to file for bankruptcy. To paraphrase the restatement, when the principal performs by paying the claimant and thereby discharges the surety from its obligations to perform under the payment bond, and later the claimant under a legal duty must repay the money to the principal's trustee as a preference, the surety's obligations under the payment bond revive, and the claimant may make a resulting claim against the payment bond. Uh, we as outside counsel always want to win the case on behalf of our surety clients, but in this instance, the battle was won, but ultimately the war may end with a revised release 
that does not allow the surety to prevail when the claimant must return a bankruptcy preference payment to the trustee. Ultimately, I am not sure that this would be the wrong result. Mike? All right, thanks, George. Okay, so next case that I would like to talk about is the um, International Fidelity Insurance Company versus Caribe Moriarty Joint Venture. Um, this is out of the Southern District of Florida case. The case involves the discharge of the surety as a result of the obligee's failure to comply with the AIA A312 performance bond condition precedents. The case also addresses the interplay between the surety's rights under the performance bond and the obligee's rights to supplement um, and perform work upon the default of the principal. In uh, Ithaca Caribe, the surety instituted the action uh, with a declaratory judgment suit seeking a ruling that it was discharged because the obligee failed to satisfy the conditions precedent in the bond. Of course, the obligee asserted a counterclaim contending that IFIC breached the bond by failing to cure the default or arrange for performance. Both parties then later moved for summary judgment. The joint venture was the general contractor and IFIC bonded the subcontractor, Certified Pool Mechanics, or CPM. CPM was contracted to perform pool work on the project. The facts uh, with respect to notice are as follows, and I'll just read through uh, quickly here some of the, um, the various notices that took place so you get a sense of the, um, the, you know, the, the, the discharge offense that was occurring here. On July 15, 2015, the joint venture sent a letter just to CPM notifying them that it was in default and they gave them three days to cure. August 17th, about a month later, the joint venture sent a letter to IFIC and to CPM advising of delays, poor workmanship, and making a demand for an A312 conference. On August 20th, three days later, IFIC responded advising that it was investigating, requesting additional documents and information, and advising the joint venture not to complete the work without IFIC's prior consent. On September 2nd, the parties held the A312 conference. On September 15th, IFIC sent another letter advising it was continuing its investigation, noting some issues that it had discovered with respect to the schedule, asking for additional information, and once again advising the joint venture that any attempt to complete the work without IFIC's consent would be a violation of the bond. One day later, the joint venture obtained a proposal from another subcontractor to complete CPM's work. The following day, the joint venture and this new subcontractor set a tentative start date for work, which was to be September 21st. On September 21st, the joint venture then sent a letter to CPM and IFIC declaring a default, terminating CPM, and demanding that IFIC perform. One day later, September 22nd, the joint venture sent a letter advising IFIC that it intended to subcontract with the new subcontractor, and the following day, on September 23rd, the subcontractor began performing the work. So, the joint venture made some later attempts to provide additional notices, but the court held that under such facts, the joint venture failed to give proper and timely notice to IFIC as required by the performance bond, failed to allow IFIC reasonable time to select a performance option, and failed to give IFIC the additional seven days notice required under the A312 bond. The court noted that coordinating with the replacement contractor before meeting the requirements of the bond was a clear breach of the bond. I think everyone would agree that IFIC was given the bum's rush here, but the Joint Venture argued that under the terms of the subcontract with CPM, which was incorporated into the bond by reference, the Joint Venture was entitled to employ other contractors to complete the work 
upon the default of CPM and that its actions were in compliance with the subcontract. In addressing this argument, the court held that the performance bond and the subcontract must be read together harmoniously in order to give effect to all terms and provisions of both contracts. The court noted that where the joint venture was required to give notice under both the performance bond and the subcontract before it could undertake completion efforts, the surety was entitled to reasonable notice and was entitled to exercise its rights under the performance bond. The court observed that the bond and the subcontract were not inconsistent. One did not modify or overrule the other. In concluding, the court stated, although the joint venture may have had a right under the subcontract to hire a replacement subcontractor to complete the subcontract, it did not have the right to do so without first allowing IFIC an opportunity to exercise its rights under the performance bond. To address the interplay between the subcontract provisions and the performance bond provisions, the court essentially reverted to the time-honored rules of contract construction. Thus, it is generally accepted rule that when the provisions of a contract appear to be in conflict, the court should attempt to reconcile those provisions if possible. And an interpretation of a contract which gives a reasonable, lawful, effective meaning to all the terms is preferred, is preferred to an interpretation which leaves a part of the contract in an unreasonable, unlawful, or no effect. How this interpretation of the performance bond and the subcontract will play out in a given jurisdiction will depend in part on how that jurisdiction applies the incorporation by reference. Um, in some jurisdictions, when a document is incorporated by reference, the two documents become as one, and it's as if the surety is a party to the subcontract. In other jurisdictions, the incorporation by reference is much more limited. So that's going to be an issue when you're looking at this question of, of you know, how do you determine whether the obligee can just supplement and, and complete work or whether they've got to comply with the bond terms. In addition, the, the terms of the bond and the subcontract also figured heavily in the court's analysis, uh, in particular that the existence of notice provisions in both the bond and the subcontract must be present. And then finally, as a practice pointer, you know, the, the, the IFIC folks really did a good job of in their communications, reminding the obligee, hey, you know, you, you can't just jump off here and start completing the work. We've got rights under the bond, and if you do that, you're going to be in violation of the bond. And they did that in several of the communications, and, and I think that was an important factor as well, and it's something that everybody should try to, to uh, emulate when you've got, particularly when you've got that A312 bond form. Okay, so those are the cases that uh, we found interesting. There actually were quite a few more. Uh, as you might imagine, we looked through a lot of, uh, of blurbs, and what we decided is some of those cases can be pulled together to, uh, to create their own separate presentation, so that's what we'll be doing with those in the future. So uh, before we open up the line for the question and answer period, we want to let everyone know that the next edition of Surety Today will be on Monday, March 13th at uh, 1230 Eastern Time. Our topic will be the limitations of the surety's subrogation rights. And we'll, George and I uh, will talk about, um, you know, how far you can go with subrogation and where are the limitations on that, where does it, where does it run out. Um, and so we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get into that. Quick rundown of uh, up, upcoming surety industry events on February 15th, the uh, PSCA luncheon will be held in Philadelphia. David Krebs will be the speaker there. On February 16th, the Atlanta Surety Claim Association will have its luncheon. 
On March 2nd, the Chicago Surety Claims will have its luncheon, and then on March 15th, the uh, Philadelphia Surety Claims will have another luncheon with Phil Albert speaking. So let me um, let me unmute the line here. Okay, so we're opened up for any um, any questions anybody has. You know, related to the related to the presentation, of course. Um, and go ahead. Who do we write to to get back onto email if we've been off of email? Uh, that would be J Hyatt H Y A T T at UCSLaw.com. Okay, thank you. Yep. We will send out the cases, as we said, to all of you, these case citations, so you know which ones uh, we've been talking about. I know it's tough to write that stuff down, and quite frankly, I never give a case cite on one of these uh, presentations because I know people don't have the real opportunity to write it down. All right, everybody, thank you for and No, no other questions. One last time. We'll give you five more seconds. Any other questions or any questions? Great. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, George. Thanks, Mike. Thank you.